Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Sam Delaney, and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. My guest this week is the filmmaker Mark J. Francis. In 2017, Mark co-directed the documentary feature Walk With Me, focusing on the famous spiritual leader, writer, peace campaigner, and father of mindfulness, Tick Nhat Han. Mark was already a successful filmmaker with a series of hits under his belt and a rising profile in the industry. But his experiences while filming at Thich Nhat Hanh's monastic community would change his outlook on life forever. I was fascinated to hear about his experiences within that community, his insights to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and his own spiritual journey. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Mark J. Francis, welcome to The Reset. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Mark. Um, and congratulations on uh, the audio book, Walk With Me In Sound, which is wonderful. And we'll get on to talking more about, but I'm really interested in your personal story and what led you into involving yourself in the world and the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, tell us a bit about how that all started. That all started in 2011 after I had was doing really, I was doing very well, success, being quite successful with where I was going in my career and um, <clears throat> just kind of hitting certain high points that I'd always dreamed of hitting. It was a becoming, being a filmmaker was more of like, um, I was going to say like a dream come true in the sense that I was following a path that, that wasn't expected of me. I was expected to have like a proper serious career and pursuing a creative life was going against the grain. So I always felt like carving out a creative life and doing things that I wanted to do on my terms was the answer to happiness. And um, I was becoming successful in that. And then it just reached this point that I was starting to feel a bit um, empty I was getting the kind of success and I was getting to the places that I wanted to, but I still had like this niggling feeling in me of not feeling like enough contentment. And by that point, I'd already had one daughter um, and another one was on the way. And somewhere in my, in my consciousness, this question was coming up saying, do you really know yourself well enough to be a good father? So there was something about having children that started me to question myself, to go, am I going to just repeat the patterns that I received and pass them on to my kids unquestionably, or am I going to be able to offer them something where I'm bringing a little bit more awareness to, to who I am? And then, and then I was thinking about their education and what kind of education they should have. 
and um, how can I educate them? So I had these kind of questions around swirling around me and then I got a call uh, from my, a close friend of mine who's a filmmaker too, Max Pugh, who told me that the, his brother several years earlier had taken, uh, given up all of his worldly possessions to, um, and made a vow of celibacy to join um, a monastery that's led by um, this world-famous Zen master, Vietnamese Zen master, Thich Nhat Hanh. So several years into his kind of residency there, he called his blood brother, Max, and said, look, we're thinking about making a film, having some crew come in and make a film because Thich Nhat Hanh's getting older now um, and we've never had anyone document uh, his life. Um, would you be interested to come in? And Max called me up saying, Mark, I know you've flirted with some of these kind of Buddhist ideas in the past. We've spoken about them. Do you want to join me in exploring this? And I thought, you know what? Maybe this could be a good thing. I, I feel like, you know, maybe if I go and find out something in this world, it might answer some of these questions. So I, I kind of said yes, not really knowing why, but just very curious that this could be helpful for me. And um, I think at that point, yeah, so that was really how it began. And I can go on to tell you what happened from there if you want, but that was kind of the beginning. So it was both personal and professional, this decision thing. Okay, this could be an interesting film, because obviously it's self-evidently interesting subject matter, but you also thought, well, this could be something that could be personally beneficial for me. 100%. And I had been very lucky prior to that, you know, up to that point. I still am, that there isn't actually a difference between... It's what I'm personally interested in that I end up making films about. Yeah. I try and find ways to get you know, funding for projects that can support my personal interest in things. Yeah, yeah. And this was one of them. It was, I was at the heavily involved social issue filmmaking at that point. And then suddenly I thought, well, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking at the problems of the world, but would this help me look at my own internal problems? What, what was the process by which it became more serious? How, how long did it take when you, you went there? You went to France, right? Well, the, the, yeah, they have monasteries all over the world. The main, one of the main ones in France, but they have a couple in the States. And the first one that I went to was in California in, right. in the States. So I didn't do any research about Thich Nhat Hanh before I left. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like motivated enough. I better immerse myself into this. It was just like, I'll fly out there and I'll see what it's about. So when I, that's ex essentially what happened. I flew out to California um, uh, literally three weeks after the, this telephone call and found myself um, in this mountainous area outside of San Diego um, where they have a temple. And I arrived at midnight in this monastery halfway through this retreat that they have where they hold up, they invite guests to come in and do these mindfulness training programs. And I was ushered into this library at midnight uh, because all the other places where the public go had been filled up and ended up sleeping on the floor of this uh, monastic library until I woke up the next day and I headed down to uh, the hall where he was giving, Thich Nhat Hanh was giving his first talk. And I'm kind of a bit dazed. I'm a bit jet lagged. I'm very skeptical. I'm not signed up to this. I'm thinking, well, what is all this about? Who is this guy? You know, I've got lots of skeptical questions. I'm looking at the kind of the scene around me, which is very, which isn't something that I'm, I'm, I'm really, it's not in my comfort zone, quite mm. frankly, back then. And um, I arrive in this meditation hall, where I sit at the back and I'm getting comfortable in my seat and I clock him and he's slowly moving into the middle of the room, into the middle of the stage and he turns around and he looks out and I feel like he's looking at me. There's at least 400, 500 people in the hall at this point and he says, the best education that you can give your children is to know yourself. Mm. And when he said that, it felt like a lightning bolt went like lit up in me, like something flipped in me from that moment. I would, I, I started to the beginning of my journey of looking inwards to go, Holy shit. I thought that, you know, what education am I going to give my children? What school should they go to? How well should they do in school? Yet here he's basically saying the best education you can do as a parent is to know yourself and essentially really understand why you feel the way you feel, who you are, what you want, what's your purpose in life. And just by doing that, 
just by embodying that, you will transmit that to your children, not by sitting talking to them on your lap, just by embodying that in yourself. You will transmit that to your children and that will give them some sense of emotional security so they can then go and live the lives that they want to live and make the decisions that they need to make for themselves. And mindfulness, he goes on to say, is one of the best tools to get yourself into a state of presence so that you're able to really understand and ask these questions of yourself. So in that moment, I was like, I'm going to, this is it. This is the, I want to be, I want to know more about this guy. You know, this is, Mm. I, I just knew that somehow I needed to understand what was behind all of this stuff. And then a few days later, they were talking on the retreat a lot about suffering, about how people can overcome suffering. And they talk a lot about suffering in Buddhism. But back then, I related to suffering as what well, other, other people suffer. Um, suffering for me was biblical. Mm. So if, you're, if, you've got, if you have no food or you're in a famine or you're in a war zone, that's people who suffer. So yeah. if you're not in an extreme environment, that's not suffering. And what I was realizing they were saying is that if you have feelings of anxiety or stress or fear or guilt or shame, these negative emotions, if you have that a lot, you, you are suffering. I thought that was normal. I thought that's who we are. It's a bit like, have it getting used to a backache and you go, well, I'm just supposed to, you know, I've got a little mm. backache. I don't need to sort it out. That's just, you know, I just have a backache, but no, you don't, if you've got a backache, you've got a problem because you're not sitting properly or you're doing you fix, fix it, find it. So I, that was a, a beginning moment of me realizing, wow, I actually, these motions are a symptom of something about my life where I'm suffering to a degree where I'm really feeling these emotions and I need to find a way to understand why am I feeling them and what's causing them and how can I be more, uh, how can I just live a life, not where I'm trying to banish them because I don't believe that you can live a life. I've seen it. I spent a long time with these monastics. It's not, it's not about whether these feelings ever go away. It's about learning how to be with them in a healthy way and rather than a, a destructive way. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like in, you know, as a man um, in the society we live in, in particular, you are sort of conditioned to feel really ashamed of ever speaking out or even acknowledging any of the pain or suffering that you're going through. Um, There's a phrase, isn't there? What first world problems that's become so prevalent. And I think a lot of us sort of live with this idea, particularly if you're like, like you and I, you know, if you are white or middle class and, you know, you're male and you're living in this sort of relatively luxurious Western world, you sort of, you grow up thinking, well, actually, there are times when I feel pretty awful. But if I say that out loud, I'll just become a navel gazing whinger. And that just com- compounds the problem, doesn't it? So, it, it, you know, it, it it must have been a real epiphany to meet someone who kind of tells you, no, no, it's okay to face up to that stuff. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And then the second thing they do on these retreats is that you end up in a group. So for the week long mindfulness training thing, you know, you're there for a week of mindfulness training, essentially mixed with these talks and specific exercises. They, they teach you, but what you also do is you go into a group um, and you, every, you know, two days you're sharing your feelings of what's coming up into, in the group. Did it feel uncomfortable for you, though? I mean, it sounds really like, I like the idea of it, but that would really freak me out. I did, and I remember my first experience of doing that, and I ended up, they assigned some time, this was really interesting, because on that first week, I think they had like a theme of working with psychotherapists. So like most of the retreatants were coming from therapeutic psychotherapy backgrounds. Right. So I was assigned into a group, so they could see, well, you know, I was invited in to see what they're like. So I went in and sat in this circle to, to experience what it's like with the psychotherapist. And I was watching these psychotherapists have emotional breakdowns where they were actually for the first time in their life going, oh, my God, I spent my whole life listening to other people's problems. But I've actually never really listened to my own. And they're doing it for the first time in this in this group. 
and then I'm going and I'm fit and I'm like, whoa, this I've not been in a situation of with a group of people where they're willing to drop their guard and, and reveal their vulnerability. I was very uncomfortable experiencing that the first time, you know, and then you could feel as the days were going on, more and more people were dropping that guard, becoming more open and free to talk about their emotions. And when I got to the end of that week, um, I was like starting myself to feel like I can start talking about the things that I didn't even know I could even talk about. Um, so it wasn't until I went, I'd made this film over nearly four years. So I went back many, many times to the different monasteries. And then I went in, not with the cameras, because they didn't really trust us to do the filming until we demonstrated that we're willing to do the work. Right. So unless you can like start, unless they could see that we were practicing mindfulness and doing these exercises, they didn't trust that we would know how to make the film that best represents kind of what they're about or what they're trying to say. So I then ended up going to these groups with my with myself um, to, to sorry to the retreats. I brought my family on these retreats without the cameras in between some of the shoots that we were doing. I was coming in and out without the cameras. And then I learned. I mean, I got into it and I found myself. Now I do group work. Very, I can jump into a group and cry my eyes out um, without a problem. But um, but back then, uh, no way. That was like mm. a no. That's like a, a no zone. That's like whoa, no way. I, you know what I would do as well. Like I'm thinking about myself in situations like that, and probably a lot of blokes feel the same way. Is that I would run for the hills. Yeah. Like even if I appreciated this work, like you know, I I'm I'm not completely hostile. Uh, I've never been completely hostile to the benefits of that sort of thing. But once I saw it, and particularly if the people in the room seemed very different to me, to the way, yeah. you, you know, to my background, my upbringing or whatever. I would have just thought, I have to get away from this. This is terrifying. Did, did you have an idea? What made you learn? Was it just practice makes perfect and you just kept going back? There was enough incentive to keep going back and trying and then it finally clicked. I think there were two things. One is that um, uh, most of everyone that I was sitting in a circle with were strangers, so they didn't know me. That really helped. So I had no agency. There was nothing I could lose because mm. these people didn't know me. So that really helped to be with strangers. If we decided to become friendly after that week, great, maybe. But yeah. at least going in, no one knew me. So I felt like that really, the, the, the kind of the risk officer, you know, the, the health and safety risk officer in my mind, who goes, okay, uh, you know, Mr. Francis, uh, keep those emotions close, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> you know just don't, don't reveal your cards too early there, you know. Yeah. You know, so so if that, that helped the risk officer keep that voice down, go, okay, this is quite low risk. You don't know these people. <laughs> okay. Um, and the second one was the fact that I was there in the role also as filmmaking. So there was, I, I suppose, because I was filmmaking, um, I was partly kind of, you know, um, had a toe in. Um, And then I slowly got into it. I just think when, what's inspiring, Sam, is actually when you're in a group and you hear other people share their story, that's Mm. when you become inspired to start sharing yours. When someone really opens, opens up and says something profound, like, you know, my, I lost my son to suicide three years ago and my life has completely fallen apart and my marriage has fallen apart and I can't get back into work and I'm this and I'm that and I don't know what to do. You know, when someone says things like that and then it's your turn, I I feel like, no, wow. I mean, I, I, I feel more willing to step forward. If other people are there doing it and then I start feeling... The, the energy, the spirit of what this is about, because um, what you realize is, is that the power of listening, they call these exercises deep listening. Thich Nhat Hanh has a practice and the practice is called deep listening. If you can really listen to somebody with your being in the present moment, feeling really I'm here, I'm listening to you. It really can have a healing impact on the person who's doing the talking. So I think you become aware of that. And actually, it is nice to be able to listen to other people's problems in the right kind of environment. And you could start to feel the benefits of what was happening. 
And the other thing they do, which is, I think, good, is that the people who listen, who do the listening, are not advised or is not recommended to advise the person of their problem. So you don't then go, oh, right, yeah, well, um, you know, I know this great place where I went to with my neighbor's <laughs> son who committed suicide and you should go there or I can give you the number later. No, you're not invited to then try and save or rescue that person. You're there just to listen to them, to, re- to give them an opportunity to really just release a bit of that trauma that they've been holding in a space where which they feel safe. And that is essentially what Thich Nhat Hanh believes. If we can deeply listen to others, then we're giving people an opportunity to become, to, to have a much healthier mental state of mind. Um, it's so interesting that it's something that keeps popping up in conversations. Funnily enough, with, with my therapist only today, we were talking about the art of listening and the, the instinct that I often have when someone shares something with me to offer up a solution or some advice or just find it really difficult to just respond with kind of silence. Um, what was it like taking your family there? Tell me about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a year or two later, you know, when my second daughter was born, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that all members of the public are invited to go to the monastery because they open their doors for something like 40 weeks of the year to invite people to come in and, and go through the, these retreats. And when it's the summer, you're invited, you can bring your children. So um, they offer these um, children programs so the kids can just go off and have fun when you can try and have a little bit of meditation time. And uh, they loved it. Kids absolutely loved it because they just felt it was a really relaxing environment. It's out in nature. Um, the monastics, the monks and nuns are like all around playing. They're, they're very, they're very, they're not austere. They're childish in their own manner. They swing in. They've got playgrounds. They swing in trees. They go picking, fruit picking. Um, you know, so they offer, they offer the children a lot of joy and, uh, and offer them a lot of presents. And they need that too because they're, they're in a school system that's about goals. It's about whether you're better or worse than the person next to you academically. It's, I think it's a very toxic environment that, 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 that they're in. Um, and this kind of place helps just dropping all of that. And at early ages encourages them that you don't need your mobile phone. You don't need this. You don't need that. We can just really slow down here and be in nature and that will make you happy. And I think my children have benefited from being exposed to those experiences that they had at a very early age. Yeah, I guess that's crucial. How old were they? Um, between the ages of uh, six months and um, nine years old. Right. So when they were first there, because, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, it must be very hard for them to first get used to it, you know, the way kids are with their phones and the sort of addiction that children have to being distracted. But I suppose if they were very young when you first took them there, then they they weren't yet quite so deep into those habits. Yeah, I want to go back with my 13-year-old. She's now 13. She's already been there three times, so that would be an interesting... Mm, uh, That's particularly difficult age, I guess. But what also happens, Sam, is that actually the parents become more relaxed. And yes. Parents become more relaxed. The children become more relaxed. Mm. We forget our, we start dropping the mobile phones and start anxiously thinking about the to-do lists and what we have to do. And we start slowing down. And when they pick up on that, they start slowing down. I do think that, you know, children and how they're feeling is in constant relation to what is happening inside of ourselves as the parents. And when we become relaxed in ourselves, so do they. Yeah, so I was going to ask you a bit about that, about how, you know, you said at the beginning, and it'll be familiar to so many men listening to this, is that you'd hit a lot of the targets you'd kind of set for yourself in your career, in your life, and yet you didn't quite feel as good and as fulfilled as you thought. But I also think in, in, in your job, filmmaking, from what I know about it, it's a very, um, it's hard work, both mentally and actually physically as well. It's, you know, it, and even when you're not actually, Actually making a film the the gaps in between that as an independent filmmaker with like I guess the stresses of raising finance and getting projects together and that, that's a big slog and then once you finally got all that then you the real work begins 
This, to me, feels like it must be, it's almost like the opposite of what Thich Nhat Hanh and his, his teachings are, are trying to advise. You know, was was that a big thing for you? Were you do you look back and think, well, like, you were basically an exhausted person? Yeah, thank you for reminding me. That was actually <laughs> another, another motivation. I was actually looking at this going, wow, actually, no, this is, and I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a career that's full of insecurity and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I don't know where my next paycheck's coming from. I don't know if I invest in this idea for the next three or four months, whether someone's going to give me the money for it eight, nine months later. There's massive insecurity in it. And if I'm somebody who gets easily stressed and anxious, which I used to be then, I mean, I, I won't be able to survive. I'm going to have a breakdown. Mm. What the Tiknahan. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Teachings it about, which is really important to emphasize, is that I mean, there's many different strands of Buddhism, but with his Zen Buddhism, why he's so popular is because he doesn't, he believes anyone can isolate themselves on a mountaintop alone and find pretty much peace and calm. But you have to be in your day-to-day living and life. And in that, you have to find your inner peace and calm. So all of the monastics that are in this monastery are trained to be there. That's why they've got, Uh, people on retreats there because they've got several thousand people walking through every year that the monastics are involved in accommodating cooking for and leading mindfulness training programs for and on top of that having to keep up their routine of meditation and mindfulness training and everything else so they're being trained to find a sense of inner peace amongst the busyness of a kind of life and i think those teachings that i was getting from them those some very specific tools i picked up were how I can apply that in the day-to-day. So what I was very good at was getting myself caught up in the storm of my life. And the analogy that I would give for that is like a cool t- tornado swirling around me. When you, I, I would get quite quickly in that tornado and I'd just be spun around my own life. If there was a, if there was a problem, it very p- quickly feel like a crisis, for mm-hmm. example. Um, so... I think what's started to happen to me now since I've come in touch with those teachings, I've actually feel myself, the storm hasn't gone away, but I'm able to stay more in the eye of that storm. It's a small difference, Mm. but it's making a massive difference. So a problem, you know, problems are going to come, but it's my relationship to that, how I view that problem is no longer a crisis. It's a challenge and I'll overcome it. It's okay. Not, oh my God, the world's going to end, panic, panic. What am I going to do? Um, and that's, I think, the slight change. And I think that's what's now given me the confidence to carry on doing what I'm doing. Because at one point I had a vision that I was going to win an Oscar and uh, be highly fucking depressed about it. And yeah, I could yeah. see why, because I would have, you know, just become so caught up in the anxiety and the stress and not spending enough time with my kids because I'm overwhelmed with trying to get my objectives achieved and all of this stuff. But to have us this happy to have a happy life, to have a, a life that's healthy. Um, I think you do, it's about what you, how you look after yourself, how you take care of yourself beyond what your career is. How, what's the quality of time I'm spending with my loved ones? How do I, am I, what am I doing for myself in terms of my exercise or spending time in nature? All these things are really important in order to try and maintain a healthy mental um, you know, life. And I think, that's what I've picked up a lot on since uh, do, since doing all of that. 
I'm I'm really interested. I've had some Tiknat Khan books lying around the house for a while now. So many people recommend him, and you know, and I they're the sort of things I dip in and out of, and you know, I always find something fantastic. Uh, but mindfulness, which of course is something that he is regarded as the sort of father of, what can what can we learn about applying these sorts of principles to our real life? Yeah, I think I think it, you're right. It's not about whether it's not about trying to think that these problems are going to go away if these divorces aren't going to happen. I'm not going. You're not going to lose your job, or you can have serious serious um, life events that can have massive impacts on me on us. These things can do and will happen, um, but again, I think it's about our how we, the degree to which we, how much fear and anxiety and stress we feel when these things happen will dictate whether it's going to be manageable or a disaster. Right. So it's not they're not going to happen. It's not you're not going to feel them, but it's the difference between staying on the edge or falling off the edge. And that's what you feel you've learned to do. So you're living, you know, obviously you're, you're doing the same thing for a living. You didn't do what your 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 friend's brother did and sort of, you know, yeah. go and live within that community. Yeah. And that, that's what's amazing is that you are actually doing what you were doing before, but now you feel better able to handle all of the challenges that yeah. that might bring. Yeah, I'll give you an, I'll give you a small example of one of the teachings that they that, that he teaches that's very applicable, which is the, this telephone meditation. So the idea is is that um, if the phone rings and you looking at the phone and let's just say it's somebody who you are dealing with in business or whatever it might be, and you guys have got conflict developing, so it's, you know that it's going to have a negative impact on you energetically when you pick up this telephone. If you pick up the phone and just go straight into that call, you're going to suck yourself right into the negative energy of that conversation. And if it's full of anger, then, uh, and, and whatever it is, it's going to be transmitted right into your system. But if you say, okay, that's Jeff Bloggs calling me now. And then you breathe three times before you pick up that telephone. Normally, normally that would be roughly about three rings. Don't pick it up straight away, you center yourself. You're breathing in, you're breathing out. Do it three times. And then you pick up that phone and say, John, mm. you're going to have that angry conversation, but you're going to come off it feeling less angry and wound up as a result of just steadying yourself for that 30 seconds or 25 seconds before you, before you started it. So the, the, the conversation is still going to happen. But your way of relating to it is going to not be as 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 um, overwhelming had you not have done that. And it's those little things, it's those little micro moments that I think we can do in our lives that does actually have a massive impact than when we're just moving from one telephone call, one Facebook like, one email, one other, you know, from one to the other, moment to moment to moment. Um, without the, with these little pauses, can really can really help us. I think. Well, they've certainly helped me. Uh, tell me about making the film. Obviously, you earn their trust, the community's trust, by demonstrating that you were willing to do the work. And and then you started to make the film. Um, by the way, I think the film is an incredible watch because obviously there is a, the documentary element to it, which you're learning about fascinating society, but there is a vibe to the film in terms of the pace and particularly the sound right from the beginning that, and I know we're going to get on talking about the new audio book, which is, is designed to actually help people to relax and, and meditate. But the, the film too, the way it looks, the way it sounds, the way it's paced is genuinely quite meditative to, 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 is that how you always, I suppose what I'm thinking is, did you go there with the intention to make a film like that? Or was it the work that you did that made you sort of approach it in that way, because there is a beautiful, your use of silence in it is really quite powerful. Did that all come from what you were learning while you were there? Yeah, I think what, what we, well, the, in the end, I mean, it took us, you know, we made this film over, you know, four years. <laughs> and what we originally intended for the film was nothing like how it ended up. 
But what we wanted to do in the end was our intention was, can we create a film for the cinema that can transmit the energy of mindfulness as we're experiencing by living there? So you can go into the cinema for 80 minutes and it's going to feel like what it means to be calm, relaxed and mindful, basically. Um, that was in the end what we wanted to achieve. Um, but getting there, it was it was a great, great challenge of loads of problems that, that eventually arrived at that, at that solution. I mean, one of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh said, because we wanted to put in front and centre of the film was, you know, the message that came back to us is don't make it about me. Right. Like the chief guy is saying, don't make it about me. Make it about the community. Um, well, we're like, well, you know, we're looking around and we're seeing 600 at that point, monks and nuns with brown robes and, and shaved hair. It's like, make it about them. And don't make it about any one of them. You've got to make it about all of them. So like, this is a film and you need heroes and you've got to have one person that you're following. And they go through this, that, and that. I say, well, no, find a way to do it without that. And one of the reasons why he didn't want to be the center of attention is because he feels that the next, you know, our, we are put as a society, we're putting too much trust in the hands of leaders who are making decisions that's not in the interests of where we as community want to go. Mm. And for his whole life, he's really not been interested in media attention. He's wanted to be very, very low key, which is why he's not as famous as the Dalai Lama, but he's certainly well known in that in that world. So <clears throat> that's what his kind of parting message is as he approaches 95 years old, is that um, we as communities need to empower ourselves much more with what we think is right for us and somehow take the lead as a body rather than disempowering ourselves and putting that in the hands of a minority who aren't going to make it. So that, that was kind of one of the, 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 the things that, that was parted to us. And a result of that, it kind of ended up leading us in that direction of making a, uh, like a film that was kind of personifying what it feels like to be mindful rather than the film talking about mindfulness or talking about him. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I really think that you kind of deliver both, and, and that's seemingly what you've uh, attempted to do now. The film's out in 2017. Now the audio book is out. Uh, tell us a bit about that. I think once we finished the film, we were in a position where we were thinking about, <clears throat> I was wondering, well, is there a way of still recreating this experience being audio? Um, wouldn't it be great if people could actually still have the same experience, but without needing to use their eyes to, 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 to receive it? And then I put it on the back burner and then the coronavirus, shortly before the coronavirus kicked in, um, I started to work with it, um, started to work with that project called up somebody else that I know, um, a music producer called Matt, Matt Coldrick. And we started to find ways in which we can transfer the idea of this into an audible format. And then once when coronavirus hit, it was obvious that we've hit a new temperature um, in, in our world right now of feeling anxious, feeling insecure, feeling unsafe, not knowing what to do. And I think now more than ever before, just like your podcast is uh, trying to, to, to really be, be something that, that, that can offer some perspective and help on mental health issues. And um, I felt like now more than ever before, there's an opportunity for creating an, an audio book, an audio journey that people could just put some headphones on at any time, at any point, more than once, and just have an opportunity to settle themselves down come back into the present moment and have an opportunity to ask some questions about what's really important for me in my life right now. Mm. And that's what I, the audiobook's for. I, um, what do you, I mean, the sense of peace that you immediately get when you do listen to it makes you, okay, it makes me just want to be there to be honest, it makes me want to be out in nature. And, there, you know, nature is obviously so powerful because it's not just the silence and the beauty, but the sense it gives you of there being a permanence outside of the storm we all live in every day, that there are certain permanent things that are just there all the time. How how do you, when you're back in, I don't know where you live, are you London, uh, do you live in London? Brighton. Brighton, okay. So once you're back in that environment, and you're in the real world again, despite everything that you've learned. 
how do you i mean obviously you've got the lovely south downs very nearby but how, how do you balance that between the kind of being in in the in, in that storm of, of living in the world that we live in and working where we live in and then kind of removing yourself into periods of silence do you do that regularly do you get out to the south downs do you make sure you reserve time every day or does it work in a different way yeah, I do. I have started to do that. I didn't used to do that. I mean, I, I mean, I used to be in and out of London all the time. Um, and, uh, and I enjoy it. I love London and I love being in the buzz of it and all of that stuff. But again, I'm a type of person that can very easily get overwhelmed by that stuff and not know what to do with it. It's one of the decisions why I actually moved down to Brighton 20 years ago was to have a balance between something that I could always retreat back to and find a way to come back to myself and mm. then choose to step into the the epicenter of, of buzz and all of that yeah. stuff. Um, Cause I recognize there's a need for that, but even in Brighton, I can still get lost in my own, <clears throat> in my own kind of busyness. So I have made more of an effort to spend time in nature. I think for me, I'm finding connecting to nature, being in nature. I do find taking a walk in nature for me is a very healing, calming um, activity that really starts to soothe me. And um, that's what I'm doing more of. But I've taken that to an extreme because I've got a new project I'm developing um, out of the interest of now going into nature, which is I've signed up to a shaman training course. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, what's really interesting about, I, again, it's a, I picked up this leaflet four years ago um, and I thought, what's all that about? That sounds a bit wacky. And then when during the coronavirus period, I was cleaning things up and this leaflet popped out. And I thought, oh, where do you do that? You'd have to go to Peru. You go into Sussex, which is just in a, you know, in a woodland in Sussex now way. And you do all this kind of intensive, like how to connect to inner nature by connecting to nature work. Um, but it centers around, again, this theme of what do you, what, what like, for your mental health and your mental well-being, these kind of things that are an offering. So I've now, I've now started this training course. I've just, just finished that for a year. And I found that I'm really enjoying these experiences that have been very, again, another whole set of stepping outside of my comfort zone again, yeah. on the complete other end of the spectrum. But I've really enjoyed these experiences where it's, it's been very, literally just spending time in nature, not trying to do anything, but just be there and enjoy it. Um, obviously, there's some specific teachings that that, that we get taught, but um, that in itself, I found I found really powerful. Um, that is really fascinating, and I think it's great that you know a lot of I've men of all different ages on this podcast and and as readers, but I do feel that it's men. I don't know how old you are, but when we hit a kind of a middle aged fatherhood point, is that you have to have been through like the the kind of madness and occasional moments of hell that life can bring you during your years of cynicism in your 20s and 30s to arrive at a point when you get into middle age where you just think, you know what, I'm dropping all cyn- I'm up for anything. I'm up for trying all sorts of stuff now. It's sort of liberating, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but you're saying there, oh, I've done a course with a, a shaman. I'm like, if 10 years ago, I just thought, oh, my God, that sounds balmy. And instead, I'm sitting there thinking, bloody hell, that sounds amazing. I'd love to do that. And I think you have to have sort of gone through all the shit and the madness, don't you, in your previous years to to arrive at the point where you're just open to all these fantastic new ways of seeing life. I think so, yeah. I think it's not until we get to a point of crisis where we go. I mean, one of the things I'm learning on the shame and training course is what they're asking is you have to make a decision if you believe in a higher power beyond that. No, that could, however, you can determine or decide mm. what that higher power is. It could be anything you want. Mm. Um, but do you believe in that? And if you do, you learn to pray to that. And if you have an, a connection to a higher power, that's the ultimate way of managing your mental health issues. Um, because it's, it's mental health problems is a call, in their view, to understand that spiritually you are not nourished enough. And if you nourish yourself spiritually, then you're going to find it easier to understand about the mental health patterns and issues that are going on in your life. And the way to get you to pray is to yeah. put you in extreme positions of suffering, physical oh suffering. Really? Where you literally go, help me! 
<laughs> and that's that's part of the training you've been yeah, doing. It's all, it's all experiential. They put you in very, very difficult positions. So I've got, like each weekend there's a different extreme exercise that I'm going to do where you where it's like you you have to pray. Otherwise, you're not going to get out of it. And then you do wow. you go, oh, sh- oh, and then it breaks through like a, a held belief of, oh, actually, you know, I'm starting to understand and connect to this in a way that I wouldn't do normally. But again, yeah, ten, there's no way I would have put myself through this uh, however many however many years ago. And and, even and now, I just think it's I could I'm great. I'm a, I've got great material for a comedian of the. Uh-huh. You know, the but you've got through it. That's the other thing. I'm thinking this is exactly the sort of thing I think. Yeah, I'm signing up for this. And then the first time they put me in one of those positions, I'm like, I'm never going back there again. It's, you, you you saw you've seen it through a year of this. I mean, what do you qualify soon? It's a three year course. Three year course. And is it so? This is a spiritual tradition, but it's not aligned with any re- particular religion or anything like that. Uh, not, a re- I would say, a way of life. I mean, it's adopted. It's coming more, you know, Tignahan's more Eastern mysticism. Yeah, shamanism is coming from an animist point of view. Right, uh, animism, I suppose, is very much embedded in the indigenous cultures of the world. So all okay. indigenous cultures are having animist belief systems where they're trying to connect to spirit. They're connecting to their ancestors and they're connecting to nature to try and get insight about what they should do and how they should live their lives. Um, it's so fascinating talking to you. Before I let you go, I want to talk to you specifically about um, men and mental health, which remains a, a very big issue in our society. That you know, it's what the reset was really first designed to do was to sort of engage men who, who struggle to open up about mental health and engage in conversations about this sort of stuff. And and we see that manifesting the stats around male suicide and, and and other problems. Um I know you know you've done a lot of thinking and, and work around that. What what's your view on where we're at with a society as a society with men and their mental health? Yeah, I, I think I think it's um, there's a lot of work to be done on that. And um, I've been doing I, again, I, you know, last few years I've been doing specifically men's work where I where I wanted to get myself in environments where, you know, I can be in a circle with men where we start to be vulnerable with one another. And I found that really um, I found that really healing. And I don't think you can do enough of that kind of work as a man. And I understand the whole thinking behind men's work because it's just coming from this basis that traditionally as men, we weren't able to have a meaningful emotional connection with our fathers because our fathers couldn't do the same for um, with their father and so on and so on and so on, mm. back and back and back and back. So we've got like an emotional bankruptcy with our, with our own fathers. But with the mothers... Obviously, for some, it's different. Everyone has different relationships with their mothers, but essentially with the woman, with the feminine, with the mother, there is a space where, you know, we can be more emotional. I have a very strong emotional connection with my mother. Um, but what that does is that the... but So like somewhere in me, I've got a distrust towards the male. I can trust the female, but I can't trust the male. The female is a place where I can kind of share my vulnerability with. That's how it's brought up. The male is not a place where you show your vulnerability to. That's mm. unsafe and dangerous. Yet, for me to be the kind of man that I want to be in my life, it's exactly there in that space with men and being vulnerable with men that can really give me the healing that I need. Mm. And um, again, I've been trying to and investing in that kind of <clears throat> some of that kind of work or therapy, or whatever you want to call it, to try and develop that, develop that a bit more. And I think we as men need as much of that as we possibly can to have access to those kind of tools. So you only need one or two men or, you know, two or three men, you can just meet up and we're not trying to compete with each other, actually just trying to own up to each other and and feel like we can own up with our insecurities and our failings without fear of being like we're failures and that we haven't, you know, we're not hitting the mark yet. And I think the mass media is brilliant as a brilliant kind of environment, toxic environment, to make us feel really fucking insecure. Um, And we need more media out there that's going to try and allow us to have more kind of vulnerable conversations. And we don't have to be perfect at all. Um, It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes. Um, 
it's okay. And just to have that constantly messaged back to us is something that we really need now more than ever before. Um, Mark, it's a real pleasure to have you on The Reset. Thank you so much for your time. It's fascinating talking to you. Um, the audio book, Walk With Me in Sound, 1st of October, is where I believe it's out, and I can highly recommend it, published by Penguin. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been great to be talking to you. Great stuff. Thanks, Mark. That was Mark J. Francis. What a journey he's been on. I've always been a bit of a cynic about mindfulness and question how much it could really help ordinary folk combat the very real challenges that we all face in day-to-day life. But I think Mark gave me some real insight into the very practical ways that he's applied it to his life. Check out his film, Walk With Me, which is available online and also the brand new audio book, which is fantastic as well. Remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelady.substack.com if you want to receive my weekly free newsletter and a like for this podcast on iTunes would help as well. Until next time, gang, be lucky. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.